Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Satterley. My guest today, Jake Keel, is a passionate environmental leader and corporate sustainability professional who directs one of the world's leading development companies, ensuring they are a superior corporate citizen and at the same time improve their profitability. For 15 years, he has confronted social and environmental challenges in the Dominican Republic as vice president of the Grupo Punta Cana Foundation and vice president of sustainability for Grupo Punta Cana. Under his leadership, the company's sustainability programs have been recognized by numerous prominent international awards. As vice president of the Grupo Punta Cana Foundation, he was instrumental in pioneering one of the Caribbean's largest coral reef restoration projects, implementing the Dominican Republic's largest integrated solid waste program, known as the Zero Waste Initiative for Grupo Putacana. Jake directs the Center for Sustainability, a think tank that works with some of the world's most notable universities to conduct research that devise experiments related to sustainable development. And in addition, Jake is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. After completing his master's degree thesis from Cornell University about deforestation in the Dominican Republic, he co-directed and produced Death by a Thousand Cuts, a feature-length documentary film that investigates a Dominican park ranger's gruesome murder and unfolds into a larger exploration of illegal Dominican-Haitian charcoal trafficking, mass deforestation, and escalating human conflict on the border. But more about that later. Jake recently published his extraordinary bestseller titled Waking the Sleeping Giant, Unlocking the Hidden Power of Business to Save the Planet, proving that the private sector can and must lead the way to save the planet and increase their profitability while engaging sustainability. Jake Kill, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad that you uh, are going to give us a little time today to talk about a subject that I think in most business schools around the world is somewhat controversial. And that is that those who believe in the bottom line, stakeholders, specifically shareholders and, and board members, have, I think, generally speaking, shunned the idea of sustainable programs. Now, but before we get too deep into that, I want to take us back just a bit to give our listeners some historical context. Based on your book, I think it's fair to say that you grew up in what one might conclude a typical American family experience. How did you become so interested in the environment? And was there a specific experience that you can recall that might have triggered that interest? I think we did have a, a pretty uh, typical American upbringing. Um, we were, my brother and I grew up in South Florida in a time when it was still pretty rural, uh, still a little wild. And uh, we had the the experience of spending a lot of time outside in nature and uh, getting to you know play in the in the creeks and in the ponds locally. Um, and one day we had uh, my brother and I were outside and uh, we had a visitor that we hadn't expected, and it was a, a rather large alligator <laughs> that came up on the lawn uh, and it was just sunning itself. And we had at that time four dogs and it was two kids running around the house. 
Uh, we had, you know, a lot of animals. We had horses. We had a little bit of everything. And uh, my mom was, uh, you know, rightfully very concerned that this dinosaur had just showed up in front of our house. So she called the local authorities and said, you know, I need you to remove this. And they said, well, has it bitten anyone yet? And she said, that's why I'm calling you to remove it. And they said, well, until it actually uh, causes any problems, we can't do anything because it's protected under the Endangered Species Act. At that time, the American alligator was an endangered species that had been overhunted uh, and was uh, critically endangered and protected. And and so she called our neighbor. Uh, neighbor came over. You know, the authorities wouldn't do anything. So she took the matters into her own hands and and had the alligator shot. And then, you know, we kind of dragged it off and my brother and I kept it there. Um, and even then, that struck me as just a very bizarre situation where, you know, my brother and I loved nature. We loved being out in nature. We thought this, you know, creature was fascinating. We wanted to be near it. Um, and there was this law that uh, was meant to protect it, but instead it drove us to do exactly the opposite. It drove us uh, rather than moving the alligator somewhere else to, to, to kill it. And so that really kind of struck me early on. Um, and this, this kind of dichotomy between what the rules tell you should do and what actually works on the ground. Uh, and, and, you know, is there a better way to do things? And as I got further along in my life and eventually my career, um, it struck me that the environment is incredibly important. It f- serves all these important functions, uh, but oftentimes the things that we're trying to achieve to protect it are having the opposite Im- impact. And so that's when I decided to, to really kind of dedicate it, my, my life and career to looking for you know, concrete, uh, viable solutions to protect the environment that take into account the real world experiences. You know, it's interesting that immediately brings up a conflict between private sector and government when you're dealing with uh, the ecosystem and uh, platforms on which to build uh, a support mechanism to protect the environment. I want to uh, talk specifically about the subject matters in the book that pertain to what you're doing right now. And that is that You know, when you go back to the very beginning of the origination of Punta Cana today, you know, it really was nothing more than this extremely dense jungle that happened to be in a very remote part of the Dominican Republic. And it had a beautiful stretch of beach between the dense jungle and the beautiful sea, you know, that it bordered. And what was interesting about that is that I think your developer and your CEO, uh, Mr. Ranieri, realized at that time that the development would have an adverse impact on the ecosystem as a whole. Because every step of the way, your company and your development has taken measures to ensure that as you have expanded, you have done it in a, a system that was compatible with nature. So talk about that sustainability effort as far as the company is concerned? And why why do you think that Mr. Ranieri and the rest of the people who were involved in the Punta Cana region are so sensitive to sustainability? I think the Grupo Punta Cana has been a company operating in the, in the Dominican Republic now for 51 years. And as you said, it started uh, as raw jungle, as an area that was completely undeveloped, very few communities, very little infrastructure, no, almost no roads, uh, you know, obviously no cities or towns. Um, and 
as they began to develop it as a tourism destination, I think it became very clear that uh, the attraction of the place was these natural attributes, you know, the, the beaches, the coral reef, the mangroves, the forest, the freshwater lagoons, these uh, cenotes, uh, here, we, here we call them manantiales. Uh, these were the things that were going to be drawing tourists to the place uh, in the first place. So if we didn't take care of that, it, it was really quickly going to become uh, problematic to sustaining a tourism business. And I think the the efforts they put in in the early days became a positive feedback loop. Every time they made an investment in what today we call sustainability, at that time was just common sense, uh, using local materials, being very careful about the way they built, uh, thinking about you know whatever local community was here, and being conscientious as they grew. Uh, I think they kept returning positive uh, feedback to them and telling them this is a good idea, that there's good things coming out of this. I'll give you an example. When they built originally the airport uh, in the early 80s, and it was very unique that a private company could get permission from the government to operate uh, an international airport. And that was kind of a groundbreaking endeavor in that time. Uh, and so they convinced the government to allow them to build an airport in Punta Cana, uh, and they had almost no money to do it. So they had to be really creative about how to build something that looked like an important, uh, legitimate air- airport, but uh, but also could fit into the budget they had at the time. And so the strategy for doing that was using local materials. So using the local rocks that they were cleaning off the runway to build the walls, uh, using uh, the palm thatch for the roofing, which was all found locally. Uh, they found that eucalyptus beams, which are not native to the Dominican Republic, but can be found here and where there was you know, some timber, uh, could be used for the beams. And they copied these Taino Arawak constructions in the construction of the airport, leaving space on the side so that the natural coastal breeze come through and cool the place because they didn't have enough money for air conditioning and electric generation. They left space for the trees to grow through the thatch. They left uh, space in the thatch where the light could shine through and uh, illuminate the space naturally. So all of these ideas nowadays is very evolved and called green architecture, sustainable architectural, regenerative architecture, whatever you want to call it. But back then, it was just common sense, practical solutions to having very little money and having some local resources that could be utilized in construction. And so what were the the outcomes of that kind of building were much lower operating costs because they didn't have to spend as much on energy, uh, a very attractive space that tourists immediately identified with the place when they landed. Uh, and then it was all locally sourced, so they didn't have to truck things in. They didn't have to import things. They didn't have all these expenses related to the cost of construction. And so that was an example of you know, sustainability in action before it was even a term that really just gave all this positive uh, return on their investment. And it encouraged them to continue thinking that way in all of the aspects of the development of the resort. And I think that's something a lot of big companies miss is they just think of sustainability as this cost that's going to really affect their bottom line. When in fact, it's an operating philosophy that has a positive feedback in so many ways that they are currently not calculating and not quantifying on their on their books, and they should be. 
Well, you know, it's really interesting because throughout your book, you detail very specific examples of how these sustainability measures that Grupo Punta Cana specifically has taken and can clearly be related to many other global entities have proven to be profitable and continue to contribute to the profitability of the company. I think one of the most fascinating things in the book that I want to talk about is this reef restoration project that you came up with. And the interesting thing about it is you did not only have pushback from a variety of local stakeholders that this was just a ridiculous, insane idea, but actually the scientific community was telling you that this was just not possible. Yet, you persevered and you convinced people uh, within your organization that this was a win. So walk us through that just a bit and tell us why. And also, is it profitable today? Uh, and the continuation of the project, is it still necessary? So for your listeners, just to give a, a quick overview of what a coral reef is, often people are, don't have a ton of background, um, but basically it's an ecosystem that's offshore, generally in tropical countries, um, and it's full of fish and marine organisms, and it provides these incredibly important services to coastal infrastructure. It protects the coast from storm events. The reef is uh, an important habitat that many of the species live there, actually produce the sand that ends up uh, on our beaches and produces these white sand beaches in the Caribbean. Uh, and it uh, is an incredibly important habitat for recreation, for tourists going snorkeling and scuba diving, uh, for fishermen to be able to you know, sustainably harvest a certain uh, types of and numbers of species. So the coral reef are these incredible diverse habitats, uh, but they are also incredibly at risk uh, and you hear more about it all the time. I started in Punta Gana 16 years ago and I, I really didn't know a whole lot about coral reefs. I had seen you know the basic documentaries that people had seen at the time and read a couple of books and was very interested I was a scuba diver so I you know liked visiting the reefs but didn't have any particular understanding of how threatened they are and when we got here we had recently conducted a survey of the reef a, a, a rapid assessment um, and it determined that our reef was very poor in fish densities so very few fish very poor in coral density, so not a lot of coral cover on the reef. It was mostly rock and, and algae. Uh, and uh, the reef was very degraded um, in, in, in line with what's happening throughout the Dominican Republic and in many places, the Caribbean. And so many places around the world at that time um, were basically emphasizing the idea of conserving and protecting reefs, which is, you know, minimizing the impacts, minimizing pollution, minimizing overfishing, and doing as much as we can to maintain these reefs intact, especially in places where they were fairly healthy. But what about in the places where they weren't healthy, where they were degraded, where there had been impacts on them already, whether from storms or from contamination or overfishing and all these different factors? And so there was a, a, a small movement of, uh, of scientists and conservationists that were trying to regenerate the reef, that were trying to grow specific coral species that were very uh, underrepresented on the reefs uh, and grow them in nursery conditions and underwater nurseries, and then transplant that material back on the reef at the same time as you were trying to improve all the conditions that had caused it to degrade in the first place, uh, whether in our case, it was very much overfishing was a, was a big issue. 
but this all sounds so labor intensive and and so much upfront cost to do something like this. I mean, and how did you believe that the end result would prove profitable for the resort? I think so much of Grupo Punta Cana's philosophy has built been built on not being afraid to do new things, uh, not being afraid to start small and grow, uh, and and grow incrementally, and really uh, master certain ideas and certain uh, areas of business, and then continue to grow them until they're successful and, and profitable. So the airport is a great example of that started very small, and now it's one of the most important airports in the Caribbean. Um, the resort grew and was very small group of beach casitas in the early days, and then it grew into its now uh, a number of hotels and private residences and, and things like that. So it was really the same concept for coral restoration is let's get started. Let's learn. Let's make mistakes. Let's see if this is possible at all. Let's surround ourselves with the smartest people we can find that know what they're doing and can uh, help us with the best science and just move the ball forward until things start to pick up momentum. And I think that's essentially what we did with reef restoration was it was very strange for a company to be doing this uh, in the face of considerable criticism from the establishment uh, scientific conservation community. Um, and, and we just kept at it and kept our nose to the grindstone. And uh, soon we had one of the largest coral nurseries for uh, the species of staghorn coral and endangered coral species in the Caribbean. And it started getting some notoriety from different uh, uh, institutions, University of Miami, the Nature Conservancy, institutions with a lot of credibility in science and conservation. And they said, you know, this is a very unique scenario where you have a private company that is willing and able to implement conservation measures uh, and not simply to protect the reef. It, they're doing it because they recognize there's a real value for the resort and for the business. Uh, and so I think that was the way it started. And now it's grown to be a very significant part of what we're doing. And you're seeing it happen all over uh, the tourism industry and even in the conservation community that restoration of coral reefs has become part of the playbook of coral reef conservation. So we want to protect the ones that are in great shape. We want to continue to maintain them healthy. But now there's a growing number of coral reefs that are not in great shape. And so we need to find all the techniques and all the ways that we can to restore them and restore their functionality uh, and also find ways that more and more businesses see value in doing that work. You know, they recognize that when there's a storm event and you have a healthy reef or a restored reef, there are protection services that the reef provides that protects human infrastructure, protects against flooding, protects against damage from the, uh, from the storm event. And so we're trying to now equate the value economically of these reefs with the value ecologically that the reefs have as well. And I think it's, it's starting to really take hold this message with companies. You know, what's interesting is in the book, you specifically talk about the reef restoration project and its relationship to the beach. And the beach is no doubt one of the number one assets that you have that attracts visitors to Punta Cana. Would you say that's correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the Dominican Republic and many of the Caribbean islands have two primary attributes that attract people, these natural resources. And in our case, it's the beach and the coral reef and these beautiful turquoise water. And the other is the, the human, uh, human resources, the 
the culture, the music, the food, the warm Caribbean personalities. These are things that really draw people uh, to the country and to, uh, to continue visiting. Um, so we have to protect them both. We have to invest in keeping them, uh, keeping their essence. And that is a very important part of our business. And so I think coral reefs uh, are part of that. And that is becoming more and more part of the conversation. And this is not just some beautiful habitat uh, that the environmentalists are worried about and we should protect, you know, to be green and to be eco. This is really a part of the business. If we are not protecting coral reefs, there's a good chance we're losing beach to erosion to storm events, to loss of species like parrotfish and other marine organisms that actually literally produce sand that ends up on the beach. So we have to invest in these things and we have to think of them as an investment in our own business. And that's where this idea that um, this is not just simply a sunk cost uh, anymore. This is now part of you know the, the operating philosophy of business. It's interesting. When Punta Cana was just an idea, before it was ever a development, I think it would be fair to say it would have been overwhelming for any developer to consider that a profitable venture. I mean, there was zero infrastructure. There was no roads, no public water, no public sewer, no system to collect trash and properly dispose of it. And the government of the Dominican Republic at the time wasn't really interested in the success of the whole operation. Yet facing each of these hurdles you engaged local parties and developed solutions that contributed to the bottom line of the company while simultaneously creating ecosystem-friendly opportunities to deal with each obstacle. Let's talk about two of these, what I consider to be very interesting ecosystem-friendly opportunities, and that is trash and worms. And I found these two elements of your book to be really, truly fascinating so walk us through trash and worms and why they're so important to the overall sustainability of Punta Cana. So trash is, I mean, a global issue. We're all dealing with it. We produce too much. We don't know what to do with it. Uh, it ends up in places where we don't want it to. Uh, it's an unattractive problem. Uh, it's contributing to climate change through the decomposition of organic material that creates methane gas and contributes to climate change. Uh, it's affecting our oceans. We're getting inundated with plastic. So trash is definitely a subject people are more and more familiar with. When we took on uh, the issue of of trash in, in Punta Cana, it was very much from the perspective of the business. So uh, at the time, uh, you know, when I arrived 16 years ago, uh, the system that we had was essentially pile up the garbage in uh, small containers and then take it away. And then it would go to a landfill, wherever that was. Um, and it it just was not a great model because uh, one, these containers would fill up really fast. Uh, two, where it was going was having all kinds of impact environmentally and impact on local communities and people digging through the trash trying to find um, different you know materials that they could you know, sell. Um, and so we decided that we really just didn't want to participate in this exact system. We wanted to try and change the way that we were interacting uh, with our waste. Uh, so the the first thing we did was just really dive in and study everything that we produced and everything we received in terms of garbage um, and throughout the resort. You literally studied garbage, like, yes, like we, an educational process. 
right? Bag by bag, uh, you know, <laughs> container by container. In our case, plane by plane. Uh, each plane, we literally opened all the bags and we calculated how much each passenger was bringing based on where they were coming from. So a passenger from France produces uh, a certain number of kilos of garbage per passenger, whereas a passenger from the United States produces uh, much less, ironically, because the U.S. airlines really don't give you a whole lot on the flight. <laughs> you know, they yeah. give, give you a you know a bag of peanuts and maybe a drink, uh, half a can. So it's the amount of waste is lower. Uh, but in our case, we also had hotels, we had private residences, we have restaurants, we have the airplane terminal, we had airplanes, and we were handling a lot of waste, and uh, and it was very overwhelming. And so when we started breaking down this garbage and we really studied it, uh, we found that there was a, approximately 40% of it could be classified into different types of materials and then sold as recyclables. And then we found uh, that the remaining portion between 50 and 60% was organic material with food waste and organic waste from uh, the lawns and landscaping. And that waste, if we could find a solution for it, meant that much less of the material that we were producing would end up in the landfill. And so that's how we went about it. Um, we convinced the airport to build a facility, uh, a transfer station, we call it the Center for Recycling, um, that basically we manually sorted all of the garbage we were producing, which at the time was, you know, 16 years ago, that was about uh, about 15 tons a day. Uh, now, pre-pandemic, uh, when we had a lot of flights coming through, we were producing somewhere around 25 tons a day of garbage. A lot of that was coming from international flights, from airplanes, from our hotels, from the private residences, from different businesses around the resort. But other business leaders would say, just based on that explanation, you're spending a lot of money to do this when you could just simply throw it in a landfill. Right. So how did you turn this into profitability? So the, the way that we approached it, we said, um, you know, you're never going to make a fortune uh, in recycling uh, at, at our scale, you know, at the size of our company. Uh, but we found that if we were selling it as, as sorted and compacted recyclables, we were saving on transfer fees to send it to the landfill and the tipping fee to put it into the landfill. We had a much better management of the system, much more efficient because it was all being sent to one place and sorted uh, and then just, uh, you know, and segregated there and then um, classified out for the different uses and products we were turning it into. Um, so there was a considerable savings per year in waste hauling fees and in uh, landfilling fees. Um, and then we looked at, you know, what were the the value that it was producing for us as a company? And this was in the Dominican Republic, the first large scale recycling operation of any company in the country. And there's huge public relations value to that, you know, almost unquantifiable how much publicity we got. Uh, the goodwill we got also uh, when we started hosting visits from universities, other companies, local governments, and even the national government. And so we became this example of how to manage your garbage. And that's very valuable when you're a company like us. We have 15 environmental permits we're managing. We have a constant interaction with the Ministry of Environment, the Dominican Republic. And so you, you gain a lot of goodwill when you're putting a lot of effort and, uh, and investment into managing your resources. And there's, they give you the benefit of the doubt on if there's ever situations where they feel like, hey, you know, what's going on with, you know, 
some aspect of the business, environmentally speaking. They said, well, we know Grupo Punta Cana is a serious player in environmental issues. They're not, they're not messing around. So we give them the benefit of the doubt that they're, you know, there's probably some reason. Whereas other companies, they might have just gone and find them or they might have gone and stopped their operations until they figured it out. And so there's all these. What about the worms? How do the worms come into play? So my own background, I have kind of a thing for worms. Uh, I'm not not ashamed to admit. <laughs> I, uh, when I before I came to put the gun, I was living in New York City, uh, and I found a way to uh, use worms in uh, bins under my sink to transform the organic waste in our kitchen into worm compost. And so when I came to the Dominican Republic, I thought, you know, it's just we just need more worms. How difficult could it be? <laughs> so in my apartment in New York, we produced almost no waste. We don't eat a lot of meat or I didn't eat a lot of meat at the time. And, um, you know, organic vegetables and coffee grounds and, you know, eggshells, all that could be converted into worm compost. So we started out, uh, convinced the company to put some money into buying some worms in the Dominican Republic. We uh, set up an area where we were, uh, you know, producing uh, worms and then feeding them our food waste. Uh, and then, you know, over the years, we've gotten considerably more sophisticated in how we do it. We have a pre-compost process where we're uh, aerobically treating the organic material so it's much better for the worms. We have a specific machine that we created where the worms are sitting on top of a bed and then we harvest the compost from underneath. So it's a, an uninterrupted cycle. And this is a, you know, a 40-foot container filled with worms. Uh, and now we've got a very successful business selling worm compost where we are harvesting several hundred bags of worms every couple of weeks uh, and we sell it locally. We sell it uh, to homeowners, to our golf course, and then we use it on our own to produce uh, fresh vegetables and, and produce. So this is taking our a major problem of the resort, which is that we produce 60% of our waste is organic waste. And then we use these very valiant creatures, these worms, to then transform it into uh, into compost, into worm humus, they call it. And then uh, we sell that material or we use it to produce vegetables, which we also sell. So the worms become just another tool for transforming a problem into profit. And now we've begun to expand to other types of composting. Um, we're starting an experiment, for example, these small units where you can produce biogas from food waste. And we are installing that in one of our restaurants so that all of their food waste will be treated on site and produce gas for cooking fuel. And I think what the worms and what zero waste and the coral restoration, what all these things, as I mentioned at the beginning, have, have proven to us is there's just this positive feedback loop. You know, it brings value to invest in sustainability in so many different ways. And it encouraged us to keep experimenting and keep looking for new solutions and keep keep thinking outside the box uh, and and really uh, trying to attack these problems and use them as examples that other companies could could take and that was really the idea of the book was to share what we've learned you know it's it's interesting because who would have ever thought that an investment into worm poop would be a, a profitable scenario for a tourism resort. It's it's pretty fascinating, but it's not just tourism. I mean, it literally could be a profitable venture in the gardening space. People that sell, you know, nurseries that sell this type of fertilizer, the reality of it is it actually is a very 
sustainable and uh, effective fertilizer from what I from what I can tell in the book. Uh, you know, taking into consideration that Grupo Punta Cana started with a vision and it's grown into one of the top resort destinations in the world, for the most part, without government involvement. Can we conclude that the private sector not only has the capability to save the planet, as you indicate in the title of your book, but should they take the lead on sustainability and lead government to other matters? Well, I think that the issue of sustainability is, uh, you know, we want to try and create global change. We want to create large scale uh, change in the way that we're operating and the way that humans are having its impact on the planet. Um, but I think often the way that happens is very local. You know, the things that we're doing in Punta Cana um, have worked really well for our situation in Punta Cana. And that might not be exactly the case in another country or in another uh, situation. So I think, you know, in our case, uh, in the absence of the government, the private sector has taken the lead and that can be a very positive thing. We can have these huge positive impacts and fill that void. And often the government now responds to the things we're doing uh, and tries to encourage other companies to do it. And now there's uh, in the Dominican Republic, you know, 15 years after we started doing our zero waste project and separating and recycling garbage, the, the country now has a waste uh, management law that they didn't have 15 years ago. And now there's a push for all companies to do this type of management. So I think in our case, you know, the government tried to really is following the lead of the private sector. In other countries, you know, there's good regulations, there's good background, there's good science, and um, perhaps, you know, the government's role is to really encourage or to penalize companies uh, that are not involved in sustainability and push them in that direction. Uh, so I think it really depends on the situation. But in our case, you know, the private sector has led. You know, your, your CEO, Frank Renieri, once said to you that you needed to learn to crow. And it's an interesting, <laughs> right. you know, it's an interesting concept because, you know, I specifically remember sitting in a boardroom with a group of executives and saying basically the same thing. I consider crowing to be a motivator for other like-minded businesses and organizations to get up and get moving by joining the same types of initiatives, uh, you know, that you have talked about uh, at Grupo Punta Cana. But one can't just crow about their success without sounding a bit self-absorbed, as you well know. So tell us about how you failed and what you learned from those experiences. Well, I think we've learned that it's very important um, you know, to crow about what you're doing, to share what you're doing, and to be proud of the things you're doing, but to not oversell them um, before you've really had the experience of seeing them work or not work. You know, and, and we're very hard-headed in the sense that when I start something, uh, keep at it until, until we get it right, until we get it working. And then we share not only what worked, but also all the ways that it didn't work because that failing is really part of the process. So I think a lot of uh, initiatives, you know, private sector or even, you know, foundations, uh, they get out ahead promoting things before they've actually had the experience uh, of, of making it work. Um, and sustainability, it's a hard grind. It is not as easy as people will tell you. You know, it seems like it's just such a no-brainer, uh, you know, balance the planet and the community and the business. And it just seems like it all will, you know, magically work together and, uh, and you know, unicorns will fly by and everything will be perfect. 
And the reality is that this is hard work and it takes experimentation and uh, it, we fail a lot and we just keep at it until we get it right. Uh, and I think that's a, a big piece of, you know, the crowing is really sharing what worked and what didn't, you know, and sharing uh, the experiences because at the end of the day, you know, it's not just promotion of our brand and promotion of our company. It's really promotion of sustainability as a term of art and as a, a an important philosophy that can be part and incorporated into businesses. In your book, Jake, you call yourself a solutionist. Um, as you are aware, this show is called Breaking Protocol. There are times when you uh, go about finding a solution to something that you have to break some protocol. So have you ever broken protocol at your work? And what was the result of that? <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. I think, uh, you know, bringing worms into a resort and trying to make that sexy uh, was, <laughs> was breaking protocol for sure. Um, we've had other experiences where uh, we had uh, numerous calls from throughout the resort from homeowners and from restaurants, uh, and they had bees that, uh, you know, wild colonies of bees had become established somewhere in the building in the air conditioner duct. In fact, we had the first call we got was from Oscar de la Renta, who is uh, an investor and a homeowner here. And he said, I have bees in my bathroom. You know, what can I do about it? And so uh, we set up a beekeeping uh, endeavor and we started you know, collecting these bees from around the resort, putting them into boxes and producing them. And I'll never forget, you know, the, we got a grant early on and a little bit of money. And I talked to our CEO to Frank and I said, you know, Frank, we're going to invest this little bit of money we got in expanding the beekeeping and really keep, you know, cranking up the operations there so we can become, you know, a real business. And he said, I don't know, you know, it's going to be very complicated. You're going to sting tourists. This is, I don't know if this is a great business for us. And it's one of the only times I really kind of just ignored him and we went ahead with it anyway. And, uh, and nowadays we are producing between 1500 and 2000 gallons of honey a, a year. Uh, we have our own brand of honey. We've won uh, the Dominican Republic's national honey prize four times, including this year. Uh, we sell the honey at the airport. We sell it all over the resort. We sell it in supermarkets uh, and it's a, become a, quite a profitable business. Uh, and in fact, the protocol that, I, that we broke was on the label of the honey, we named it Punta Cana Forest Honey because the bees are collecting their honey in the natural forest. So it's a very beautiful color honey. Uh, but I tell the story of our and of how the business started in that uh, the founders of the company, Frank Ranieri and Ted Keel, uh, encouraged their employees to keep bees. And we've continued that tradition today. And now we're producing this, you know, this award-winning honey. And in fact, I think if it had been up to the Frank at the moment, we probably would have just abandoned the whole thing and gotten rid of the bees. <laughs> well, you know, Jake, your book is extraordinarily insightful. And no doubt, in my mind, it should be on the nightstand of every global CEO on the planet. But you got to make a promise to come back at some point and let's have a conversation about your film, Death by a Thousand Cuts. It is truly, in my view, one of the most must-see films for anyone who has any level of concern about the environment. I would be glad to come back. I appreciate it. And many of the issues in that film, uh, the, the border tensions with Haiti and the Dominican Republic and the issue of deforestation, they're still uh, very relevant today. And the film's a couple of years old and even still 
many of these challenges are are still very relevant. Well, not just relevant for the Dominican Republic and Haiti, but literally relevant for many of our global forests around the world that are being decimated. The film is extraordinary. The book is amazing. Jake, thank you for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And thank all of you for listening. Jake's book, Waking the Sleeping Giant, Unlocking the Hidden Power of Business to Save the Planet, can be purchased at major online book retailers. And for more information about Jake or to inquire about speaking engagements, visit his website at jakekeel.com. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today, and please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.